it is rarely that I depart in the middle of a series. It's not godliness, it's stubbornness. You get going in a book and you just think, you know what, if we start mucking about, we're just never going to finish this. So I tend to just plow ahead. I have had this subject on my mind for months. I would, uh, Rini's the only one who knows about this. When I wake up at night and I don't want to bother her, and I reach for a pad that is always by my bed and pen, and I scribble something down that just seems to come to me. I'm not saying it's the Lord. I think it is, but you don't have to believe that. Frequently in the morning, I pick it up, and I go, what in the world? I've been restless over this subject. Participating in the sins of others. The kind of sin... Forgiveness can't erase. Participating in the sins of others. Two texts. I really hope you'll follow along as much as you can in your Bible. Don't take my word for what I'm saying. Matthew 10, 41. The one who, the one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet... There's the same verb, will receive a prophet's reward. So the topic here is rewards. The one who receives a righteous person, just because he is a righteous person, there it is again, will receive a righteous person's reward. Here's the next text. Second John. You didn't know this was in your Bible, probably. Second John 8. Through 11. Apostle John writing to Christians. There's something he wants them to think about that will be easily missed. So, so it's like when one of your kids is going out and they're going to be away from home a bit. And you say, now watch out for this. You're telling them that because you know they might not think of that. Watch yourselves. So that you may not lose, here's the topic, losing what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So the topic here is rewards, just like the Matthew text was. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that's that, teaching of Christ, do not receive, there it is like in the Matthew text, about receiving a prophet and receiving a prophet's reward, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Well, that doesn't sound very loving. For whoever greets him... takes part in his wicked works. Not just just encourages his wicked works, but takes, takes part in his wicked works. Everybody see that? Participates in his sin. 
There could hardly be more encouraging words than those we read first from Matthew 10, 41. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person, just because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. It's astounding grace. A person who has never been a prophet, who has never been trained in any type of prophetic work, one who has never done an ounce of the work of a prophet, that person can stand on equal footing at the judgment with a true prophet. It's amazing. He can be given the very same reward as any faithful prophet is given. You get the same reward Elijah got. Wow! According to Jesus, all a person must do is receive a prophet or receive a righteous person to get the prophet's reward. So, so the, the full reward of a prophet is given to two people. It's given to the prophet and it's given to the person who receives the prophet. Helps the prophet. Blesses the prophet. The one who receives the prophet is counted by the words of Jesus. The one who receives the prophet is counted equal to the one doing the work of the prophet. And is rewarded accordingly. And all the non-prophets said... Oh, goody. That's what we all say. That is certainly incredible news for all Christians. I mean, consider how frequently, it's true, but how frequently we hear that we will be rewarded according to our faithfulness in obedience and our faithfulness in service. How many times we've been taught that our gifts and our talents must be used to the very best of our ability, and there's no argument from me on that. But how rarely do we hear that our rewards can vastly exceed our own gifting? How few Christians understand the reward of the most effective and anointed servants of the Lord can be our own reward as well. I find that exhilarating. That my reward from my master can well exceed anything that I myself have ever done for him. Think about it. I can simply receive a vastly more gifted servant of the Lord, and I can earn the same reward as he or she. I'm returning to that text, November 5th, World Impact Sunday. This would be a sunny Sunday morning sermon indeed if it weren't for the similar words by the Apostle John in our opening text. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward. 
Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Jesus Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you... Now, this, this is the same principle as Jesus taught in Matthew in the opposite direction. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So here John, the, the beloved disciple, it's the character we're looking at this morning in my class in Christian Ed, Apostle John. He's the beloved disciple from the inner circle of Jesus' followers. And, and he knows those words from Jesus. And he takes those words from Jesus and he applies them in the exact opposite direction. And, and one gets to see the inspired logic of how we, we can all participate not only in the rewards of faithful servants, but we can participate in the sins of unfaithful infidels. Does everybody see what I'm getting at so far here? There are people who don't abide in the life of Jesus. John talks about them. There are people who mock and reject the kingdom of light in this world. And... And, and John's words, at least for me, John's words press our minds in a, in a kind of a haunting direction that we're, we're not really at home with. Is it possible for Christians who have never committed those same sins... To be judged as though they had by the way they treated people who committed those same sins. You see where this goes? Whoever greets him takes part. Those aren't my words. Takes part. Is it possible for Christians to so... Um, blend in, tolerate, coexist with the wicked, just as the one who receives the prophet is rewarded with the prophet? Is that possible? And, and lest you think that's a pretty fanciful interpretation of John's words, I, I would call your attention to the fact that I think John anticipates his readers will have a hard time with the full impact of what he's saying. And we know that because of the way he prepares us with this. Wake up to this. John seems to say. Watch out for this. Think about this. So that you may not lose what you have worked for. Watch yourselves. Means It means... Consider the full weight. Don't, don't brush past this lightly. Watch yourselves. It, it means something more is being said than we might naturally assume. It, it means we're not to carelessly assume less meaning than is actually intended. It means give additional attention to this so no divine revelation is missed. In other words, 
Watch yourselves means don't assume you've covered this subject. I have one other introductory thought. I think there's a special need to consider these divinely inspired words. This isn't just John. This is the Holy Spirit through John. And so there's a special need to consider these divinely inspired words as, I think, a very needed correction to the common thinking of the church today. You could easily visit churches, a lot of them, and come to the conclusion that the church considers herself more Christ-like, more Christ-like in its treatment of the surrounding culture by the way she doesn't intentionally rebuke her sin. Why do that? We're only going to appear judgmental. We're only going to appear self-righteous if we're perceived as being against the ungodly. Certainly we'll gain more ground for the kingdom, won't we? If, if instead of being judgmental, we simply embrace and just show the love of Jesus to everybody. After all, he dined with publicans and sinners. He said he didn't come to condemn the world. So we'll appear more winsome. We'll appear more Christ-like if we don't come across as being against a whole bunch of people that we're trying to reach. It all just makes sense. But maybe, maybe we've gone a little bit too quickly. The real issue, of course, is what, what kind of love is the church to show the lost? Is, is holiness, without which apparently no one will even see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. Is this holiness just something to be pursued by me personally, or is it something to be proclaimed and insisted upon? Is the doctor life-loving toward his patient when he takes his cancer-ridden patient out for dinner or when he prescribes life-saving radiation, which shows love. I know there are shades of truth here. I can't reach anyone in any way unless I establish some kind of contact. I get that. It's almost impossible to make any hard truth reach a total stranger. So we can't place ourselves on some other planet and just hope we're going to reach the lost. That much is for sure. But that's not the point John is trying to make in today's text. John means to remind our church that at some point, any contact with our culture, in any contact, two, two very different worlds collide. There's no avoiding this. Nothing has changed since the light first, Jesus, the light first came into the darkness and, and, and the darkness hated the light. Remember reading that? The darkness hated the light because its deeds were evil. Jesus knew all about that. They killed him. 
The issue of today's text isn't the obvious need of making contact with our culture. The obvious issue in our text is what kind of contact must we make. The issue is what, what is a scripturally loving response to our culture's participation in eternally damning sin. Uh, that's, that's the issue. The very tragic common mistake is here's a person outside of Christ whatever the sin is committing some kind of sin here is a Christian who will tell that person I love you I care about you what you are doing will damn your soul eternally here's one here's one that just says Jesus accepts you just the way you are don't worry about it we love you God loves you. And the assumption will be this person loves that person and this one doesn't. And that's a totally wrong conclusion. A totally wrong conclusion. Oh, how I wish John's words meant only... That if I fail to expose that sin, I will fail to reach that person. I wish that was all John is saying, but it's not all John is saying. What John seems to be saying is that I myself participate in any sin that I fail to rebuke. You see the difference? Takes part in his wicked works. When I fail to rebuke my culture's sin, not only do I cease to be loving, but I also cease to be holy. Whoever greets him, greets him. Takes part in his wicked works. So, so there's, there's a greeting. Hey, how you doing? But the eternal context is never conveyed by me to that person. It's a greeting with, with no, no context of eternal uh, judgment and damnation for sinful actions. When that happens, John says, if you just greet him, and that's as far as your words go, you participate in his sin. I want to consider two ways we participate in the sins of others. Point number one. If you're visiting, get up off the floor. People in this church are used to hearing that about a half hour into a sermon. We're well into it. Point number one. We participate in the sins of others when we fail to rebuke their wickedness. That the Christian is commanded by God to rebuke cultural sin is the insistent, incessant... ...message of the New Testament. You see it in all sorts of places. Let me just read this one. Take no part... ...that should be obvious... ...in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, that's an important word... ...expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things... ...that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light... ...it becomes visible... For anything that becomes visible is light. 
Therefore, it says, awake, you sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What, what powerful words. It's, it's a text with two commands instead of just one. This is the obvious one. Don't do these bad things. Oh, what do they do? Stay there. So there. That's command one. Take no part. Command number two is expose them. How important is it for the church to expose the uncountable works of cultural darkness? Well, the Apostle John tells us. The Apostle Paul, rather, tells us. Exposing those sins is as important as not doing them. That's why he says, take no part, but instead expose them. So, so exposing those sins is just as important as not doing them. That's why he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Instead is the important word. It means, it means the second commandment is just as important as the first. In other words, it's as important as it is to not participate in those sins. It's equally important to expose those sins. Instead of participating, expose. So the first, participating in sins, that mustn't be done. The second... Exposing those sins must be done. So, so John says, John then says, I actually participate in the sins that I fail to rebuke. So, so there's no love and there isn't even holiness in just embracing and tolerating cultural sin. And then, and then, Paul, just like John, he calls the church to, to, to wake up. To wake up to this command. And the whole flow of the text makes clear the truth these Christians needed to wake up to wasn't primarily the avoiding of sin, but the duty of exposing it. Hence the promise, Christ will shine on those who expose the unfruitful works of darkness. And even that designation, by the way, unfruitful, verse 11 unfruitful works of darkness. It should remind all of us. That's the scripture's way of reminding us how unloving it actually is to allow anyone to continue in them without warning. You're, you're, you're sucking fruit out of their lives. So remember, the point here is the church is commanded to expose culturally accepted sin. And the reason she must do this is no one else can and no one else will. Because, because the Bible makes it clear, cultural sin is always mutually encouraged, even legislated. You can see Paul talk about this in Romans 1.32. 
Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Paul's quoting the Old Testament law. He's not talking about today in, in culture. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. As, as, though, as though sinners weren't prompt enough in rushing into sin, there's, there's massive mutual encouragement to run even more quickly and more deeply. So, so sin, Paul says, it always breeds self-justification. Sinners are always restless until others are brought into their pattern of behavior. So, so there's no hope for self-correction here. That's what, that's what the Bible is saying. You, you, the light has to expose. The light has to rebuke. Because there is no other chance for God's grace to get into this situation. Understand, Paul is saying. The whole direction of cultural sin is mutually enforced and encouraged with one goal in mind. The goal is to make anyone who speaks out against it look ridiculous. Did you all get that? The goal of culturally accepted sin, it gets momentum, broad acceptance, and the goal is to make, to make it ridiculous to oppose them. Unloving to oppose them. And there are Hundreds of thousands of Christians who have fallen for it. And it's not loving. It's shutting God's grace out. So the summons of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.11, expose the unfruitful works of darkness. But what if I don't? It's not, it's not comfortable doing that. I was so impressed. I haven't read a lot of his stuff. I'm not a critic of his. I've just, I'm not a uh, student of Rick Warren. And he was on, oh, mental blank. Who's who's the the guy that took Larry King's place? You know, the British guy? Yeah. He's, 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 He's interviewing Rick Warren. I think you can get it on, look it up on YouTube. And he's trying... Immediately, immediately, straight to the gay issue, right? There's Rick Warren, author, megachurch, pastor, visible. And after going and going and going and going, and, and, and Rick Warren, to his credit, won't, he won't bite and he won't budge. He talks about marriage between a man and a woman for life, and it goes on this, this, this whole thing. And Pierce says, don't, don't, aren't you afraid? Won't you change your mind? Aren't you afraid of looking out of touch? And the best thing I've ever heard Rick Warren say, he said, I'm a lot more afraid of displeasing God than displeasing you. I just thought, God bless the man. Like, talk about guts. What if I don't expose unfruitful works of darkness? It's, it's a lot easier not to. 
Is that up to me? Is it a choice? Is my failure at this point a small thing? What if I just love people and mind my own business? What harm is done in just keeping the peace, not rocking the boat? And, and, and now, of course, enter John, the Apostle John. Well, when you, when, when you receive and don't rebuke and don't expose, you participate in that person's sin. Consider these common situations. A, consider the times I willfully leave culturally accepted sin unchallenged. And in my leaving it unchallenged, it is entirely possible that others will continue in their wickedness, be emboldened in their wickedness by my silence. Many others will be encouraged... And who will sound any alarm? Will others be spurred on in their sin because I was too afraid to speak out against it? And is leaving others to continue in sin unchallenged by me? Isn't that the same as giving them bad advice? B. Consider the times I casually soften the moral differences between the Christian and the world. It's easy to do. We all love social acceptance. We all love to appear relevant. And what is the fruit of leaving many to think that they can be followers of Christ without ever parting company with the values of this world? Well, John says, if they're emboldened to continue in their sin, I participate in it. C, consider the times I relativize categorical statements from God's word. How easy it is for God's word to be edited and manipulated to allow sinners to continue dreaming that our Lord will never come again. We sang about it. He will never come again in vengeance to judge the wicked. And and there are passages you just have to pretend they're just not there in the Bible. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Inflicting vengeance. My point in all these examples isn't to be exhaustive. It's merely to point out that one doesn't have to seduce others into wickedness to participate in their sins. One merely has to leave their wickedness unexposed to participate in their sins. Point number two, almost done. We participate in the sins of others when we offer unsafe examples of holiness. No Christian life is insignificant. Not one. No Christian can hide his or her gospel light under the plea of insignificance. Jesus said each Christian was a city set on a hill, Matthew 5, 14, that cannot be hidden. So, so you, you are a center of influence for Christ. Whenever you act, you act for a multitude, not just for yourself. 
there are two aspects of applying this truth. A, the godless seek excuses to reject the things of Christ. It's just a fact. It is in exact proportion to my profession of Christ that any inconsistency in following him will be used by others to write off Christianity. Who can calculate how many others have been hardened into deeper sin by my carelessness of example? John's words are haunting indeed. If, if my bad example causes others to continue in rejection of Christ, I participate not only in the sin I commit, but also the ones they commit. It's not just the sins I commit, it's the sins I cause, according to John. B, the power of example has particular application in the body of Christ. I'm talking now Christians with Christians. I mean, the Bible just speaks with undeniable clarity on this subject. Every Christian's life casts influence. Not everything, not everything that might be lawful for me, standing before God alone, is lawful for me, ...as a member of the body of Christ. Did you see the difference? Not everything that is lawful for me... ...standing before God alone... ...is lawful for me... ...standing before God as a member of the body of Christ. Actions totally indifferent in themselves... ...can have disastrous effects on the conscience of others... And lead them into genuine sin. And, and, and when that happens, the haunting question John raises is, just whose sin is that? This is the clearest example of participating in the sins of others. I mean, I mean the power of example. This is the part that's been troubling me. The power of example carries my actions into places I have never been and places I will never go. The actions prompted by my bad example can carry my sin into a time when I'm no longer even alive on planet Earth. How, how do you put an expiry date on the multiple effects of bad example that ripple? How can you track down every situation where your silence encouraged others to belittle the eternal damage that sin was causing in their life? And you thought you were being loving. Aren't those hard questions to face? I think they are. Truly precious it is that I can confess my sins knowing that he's faithful and just to forgive my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Praise God. How wonderful that he removes my transgressions as far as the east is from the west. Is that east? And yes, though my sins were like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Pick your verse. 
how will I confess my participation in the sins of others? How am I going to deal with that? Do you see what I'm driving at here? How, how will I get them back? How shall I confess sins committed by others, perhaps through my own silence or my own example, long after I'm off the earthly scene? How will I retrieve those? Last point. Last page, and look, it's only half a page. Where, where do we go with this? Okay. Like, are we just all supposed to go home this morning, not home, to Christian Ed? Are we all supposed to go just feeling kind of lousy? Boy, what's the use? It's not my heart. It's not my desire. Here's how I think we apply it. When you think through participating in the sins of others through not exposing and rebuking it and through bad example, okay? Just those. When you consider participating in the sins of others in those two means, could there, could there be anywhere carelessness after hearing John's warning that we would treat any sin as slight or insignificant... I am so sick of hearing Christian people say, well, Pastor Don, God's not going to send me to hell for one sin. I hate hearing that from people. What a rotten attitude for a Christian to have. When you think of John's words, you'd think just the opposite. Every little thing can have such tremendous eternal significance. How, how can I treat anything I do for Christ as small? Indeed, this is what Paul means when he says, whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. It matters that much. It's not just saying grace before your meal. Your, your life needs this focus because everything matters so much. If I believe that with all my heart, who receives the unrighteous person. And the unrighteous person just leaves with no sense that, uh, that he's lost, that I, am, that I am upset with what he's doing if he's professing to be a Christian. If he leaves with none of that, then John says, you, you participate in his sin. If I really believe that, I can't think of a Sunday where I would ever leave church without kneeling at an altar and saying, oh God, Please don't let me screw this up this week. You might not word it that way. Oh, how careful. Oh, how much everything matters. Oh, how big following Jesus really is. Well, I got that off my chest. Hear the word without condemnation, but hear the word with serious application to carefulness and prayerfulness and obedience in all sorts of things that don't look that significant. Okay? Everyone said? Let's pray.